What do you think an introduction to an introduction would look like? Well, we're about to see one of those in action today. In our passage this morning, we will be introduced to the introducer. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought much about the importance of introductions, but they're kind of a big deal. I mean, think about it. Just about any time that someone important is about to step onto the scene, someone precedes them to frame the importance of what you will be seeing or hearing. The, the classic example, we'll see it on TV constantly, is something to this effect. Lazy, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you the President of the United States, or pick your prominent person. We even see this sort of thing happen from time to time at concerts or big-time productions. Sometimes they'll even have a warm-up band or an opener uh, before the big number that's coming to get everybody ready. Why do we do this? Why this need for introductions? Well, there's just something, I think, something important about framing significant moments or significant people about helping us to grasp the significance of something very big when it's about to happen. So, God, in his infinite wisdom, before sending the most important person who's ever stepped on the earth to accomplish the most important thing that's ever been done, namely Jesus, he saw fit to send a forerunner. Someone to go before him, to get us ready, to borrow the words from an angel that we're about to hear. He did it to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We'll be introduced this morning, as we've mentioned, to the introducer. His name, John. Many of us know him better as his title, or the, the title that we've latched onto for him, John the Baptist. And I'd like us, as we begin our time in God's Word today, to start by reading the entire account of his birth announcement, just to give us a sense for the weight of what's happening here. We'll be reading in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, 
for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my, pro my reproach. Excuse me. Among the people. Wow. God's word just amazing. Luke begins his gospel account. Remember, we're just in the opening verses here of Luke's gospel, his, his book. And he opens this account of the good news of the life and ministry of Jesus by introducing this forerunner. Uh, forerunner this introducer, if you will. And it's interesting to note, I think, what Jesus himself will go on to say about John the Baptist. Speaking of John, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Jesus then goes on after making that statement to make a bigger point about the kingdom of God. But I think you'd agree with me. That's a pretty significant statement. No one greater born of women than John the Baptist. That's saying something. Now, now Dr. Luke is the only gospel writer to give us this information, which is fascinating. He's the only one of the four gospel writers to tell us about John's miraculous birth. And he starts where? Well, he starts with John's parents. We're told, look at verse 5. We're told that John's father, Zechariah, is a priest. And his mother, Elizabeth, is also from the priestly line of Levi. So as far as pedigree goes, Jewish pedigree, they're from a very respectable line. But more important than their genealogy is their standing before God. Look at verse 6 with me. This is amazing, I think. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. I hope you got your Bibles open and you can scroll with your phone or, or uh, they're sitting there in your lap. Verse 6 is powerful. 
Speaking of John's parents, Luke tells us they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and uh, statutes of the Lord. Friends, I don't know about you, but I would take that description over my life any day. Righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his ways. Now, this, of course, does not mean that they are sinless, but rather that Zechariah and Elizabeth are a godly couple, that they fear the Lord and that, that their fear of God translates into holy living. So far, so good, right? Well, yes. And then, if you've noticed, Luke takes us right from verse 6 into verse 7. Now, some of you are saying, well, does have. That's kind of how counting works, right? Well, if you're thinking that, just zero in on the text with me because I think you might be missing the point. What does verse 6 highlight for us? We just read it. Well, verse 6 highlights the righteousness, the, the faithfulness of this man, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And yet, immediately after this note about their righteousness, about their faithful living, what do we see? Well, look at verse 7. It, it, it's okay for you to look at verse 7. You're just staring at me. What do we see? We see a note about their deep disappointment. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless. And barrenness, particularly in those days, was seen as a reproach. Not just as a reproach in society. Sometimes it was even regarded as a curse from God. Elizabeth and he tells us as much at the very end of our reading for today. We saw that when she finally does have this blessed miracle child, this John, she says, God has taken away my reproach. Friends, don't, don't miss this. Here in verse 6 and then in verse 7, what we see is faithfulness and disappointment running side by side. And it's worth stopping here, I think, for a brief parenthetical note, because this is something that we see quite frequently throughout the Bible. It's not just a drum that we like to beat because I've got a melancholy personality as your pastor. No, the reason why we often talk about pain and, and suffering and disappointment is because it's just plastered throughout this book. I think it might be helpful at this point in time to say or to see how from beginning to end, faithful living is quite often accompanied by disappointment and, and pain and, and hardship. Here's just a rapid fire list for you. We're not going to take any time on this, so don't, don't try to keep up with me. Turn it. I'm just going to give you some names to, to help illustrate this point. Faithfulness. And disappointment often run side by side along one another. How about Joseph? You remember him? Joseph, wrongfully imprisoned through the golden years of his youth. How about Jeremiah? They call him, by the way, the weeping prophet. Or you could take a look at Hannah, who also struggles in a profound way with her own barrenness. 
You've got David, you know, King David, who spends about a decade running from his life. From a king who's trying to kill him for an unjust cause, among a number of other train wreck-like situations in David's life. Take Elijah, who after performing through God's grace an amazing miracle, fire falling from heaven, then subsequently is running for his life, his reward for his faithfulness, they're trying to kill him. You've got Hosea, an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the, 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 the prophet Hosea receiving a message from God. Hosea, I want you to go take a wife of harlotry. Marry a prostitute, Hosea, and then you'll know how I feel because my people are constantly running after other lovers. And read the beginning of the book of Hosea. It reads like a dumpster fire. And yet God's grace is woven through this hardship. Take Dan Daniel, almost killed a number of times, most notably that lion's den incident, right? Naomi and Ruth... Famine, death of their loved ones, destitution, the Apostle Paul, to whom like all the bad things ever happened to fall on him. Oh, yeah. And then there's that guy named Job. Remember him? Okay, guys, that was 10. That was like the easiest list ever. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? What's the point? What can we draw from this biblical principle that's just all over Scripture? Well, if you're taking notes, I think this is where we need to spend a moment before we rush on to the climax of the text. And it's this. Don't think it's strange to find faithfulness and disappointment coexisting. Friends, God often uses this combination for his glory. So, don't be taken off guard. We ought not to be taken off guard. When in our pursuit of Christ, we are bracketed by pain, by disappointment, by circumstances that are less than ideal. God often, as I'm saying, often uses this combination to sanctify his people. And to bring glory to himself. Remember that, Christian, as you walk through this life. I love how one biblical commentator named Philip Ryken puts it. He says this about Elizabeth's barrenness. He said, Elizabeth was suffering because of the way that God wanted to be glorified through her life. And note that Elizabeth did not let her pain turn into contempt toward God. She didn't doubt his goodness as hard as it was for her day in, day out, walking through life with this reproach stamped over her. She was serving him, wasn't she? That's what we see in verse 6. Living faithfully, righteously for him. And friends, it was worth it, wasn't it? It was worth it for Elizabeth. Let's let Elizabeth and Zechariah's disappointment be a lesson for us as we serve the Lord today. All right, we'll pick it back up here in verse 
8, remember that Zechariah, John's father, was a priest. There were actually 24 divisions of priests, all kinds of priests, serving at this time on a rotating basis. And because of the large number of priests, what they would do is cast lots to determine who got to go into the holy place. Not just anybody could go in there. To burn incense, which, this is beautiful, the incense represented the prayers of God's people rising up before him. So this, suffice it to say, is not just a special honor. It was a special honor to, to have the lot fall on you and to be selected to go into the holy place to offer up the incense. It's not just special. This is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. You see, there were so many priests, they had this rule that if you got chosen by lot to do this, this was the only time in your life that you would be allowed to perform this task. So think about it. This is the climax. This is the most important day of Zechariah's career, perhaps his life. This is the focal point. Also, of the entire Jewish nation and its worship right here on what Zechariah is doing. There's a multitude gathered outside the temple to pray as he goes in to the holy place. Are you getting the setting here? You're, you're sensing what's happening? Fun little aside before we continue. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's, it's interesting to note that both John's parents are from the priestly line of Levi. So, John... John the Baptist is actually in line to be a priest. What's a priest? Well, a priest is a representative of God, a representative of the law of Moses given to God's people, which the New Testament teaches us exists as our tutor. The law was set in place to show us our need for Christ, to point to Jesus. So do you see what's happening here? John from the priestly line embodies that mission. He will be the one who literally points to Jesus to say, here he is. The very fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is, this is fun stuff. All right, let's pick back up in verse 11. It's Zechariah's big day, and it's about to get a whole lot bigger. Look with me in verse 11. We'll just read again, uh, chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, uh, to, to have this firmly fixed in place. Uh, verse 11, and there appeared to him, as he's in the, uh, the holy place now, getting ready to offer incense, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, understandably, Zechariah is overcome with fear. Verse 12, literally translated from the Greek language that this was written in to English, the, 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 the phrase is, fear fell on him, which is a fairly standard human response when a heavenly being shows up on the scene. Nearly every time you see an angel in scripture, don't, don't you see that response? Just abject fear. People are petrified. 
those angels then probably look a little bit less like the little nursery rhymey things, you know, the chubby, chubby little beings with wings. Uh, they, these are powerful and freaky moments, really. He's overcome with fear, verse 12. And in addition to giving Zechariah both the name and the gender of his soon coming son. I mean, talk about a gender reveal, right? This is a pretty cool gender reveal. Gabriel also gives Zechariah six characteristics of this baby to be. Now, we're going to move through these six very quickly. So, so I'll just put them on the screen. If you're taking notes, uh, th these are uh, attributes, heaven-sent attributes to describe the life and the future ministry of this miracle child, this introducer, this forerunner named John. The first thing the angel tells Zechariah is that John's life, John's birth, will bring joy. Verse 14. God's word is clear that children are a blessing. Made in the image of God. One of the greatest blessings and joys. They can be a hardship too, right? They, they can cause a whole lot of heartache. But children are a blessing. They're a gift from God. And, and certainly for John and, and Elizabeth, who've been waiting all their lives, almost giving up hope for this moment, John's life will be a joy. But notice here, not just a joy for his parents, he'll be a joy for many. Many will rejoice at this awesome thing that, Lord, that the Lord is doing. Look at verse 15 with me. We see the second characteristic of John's life. Gabriel says, he will be great. Not just great, great how? Well, he says, great in the sight of the Lord. Wow. I mean, can, can you get a higher calling? Can you have a, a higher, more noble designation placed over your life than it, that in God's eyes you would be considered great? Jesus confirms this, doesn't he? We already, we already heard Jesus' description of John. There's no other person born of woman who was greater than this man. Great in the sight of the Lord. Here's the third thing the angel tells us about John. Uh, he says that he's to be set apart. Uh, verse 15. No wine or fermented drink for this baby to come. Now, this is... Actually, if you've read through your Old Testament, reminiscent of the Nazarite vow, this child is going to be set apart to the Lord. And the message that he's bringing to the world will not be altered. No one can accuse John of his message being altered by any other substance or drink or influence. No, the source of this man and his message is going to be divine. And that's what Gabriel tells him next. If you're taking notes, this is the fourth thing that he says will mark John's life. He will be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love this next part. Even in his mother's womb. Now, I find this fascinating. No one gets grandfathered into heaven. But God's choice, God's sovereign power over salvation is quite clear here. 
before this baby even breaks out of the womb, I've chosen him. I'm going to fill him with my spirit. And look at, now we're peeking ahead here a week or two. I don't want to steal too much of Benjamin's thunder as he preaches on this text. But, but you just got to see this passage when uh, in, in just, just a while, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of, of John, meet one another. And they've both got babies in utero. This, this is what goes down here. This is Luke 1. I think I've got it on the screen for you. Luke 1, 41 to 44. Maybe not. I'll just read it. Um, and, uh, and when Elizabeth, this is Luke 1, 41 to 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just John filled with the Holy Spirit. Here is mom's filled with the Holy Spirit. Later we'll see his dad, Zechariah, is also going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed, this is Elizabeth now, Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb lapped for joy. So let's just get this straight. The first person to recognize Jesus, the Messiah, for who he is, is a baby in utero. Now, this has massive implications, as you, I'm sure, can begin to think for the sanctity of life and, and God's purpose in it. And, and, and we've talked a little bit about that. I'm sure we'll have other occasions to do that. Our purpose is not to, to go down that trail right now. I just want to remind you of God's miraculous purpose and his call in the process of salvation. Before this baby is even born, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and responding to the baby bump of Mary by doing flips in the womb. This is just amazing. Next one. Two more things Gabriel says about this baby. He says, fifthly, this John, this miracle baby, will turn many children of Israel to the Lord. Verse 16. Now, as we will continue to read, not just in Luke's gospel, but in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1, we see that this is indeed what happens. When John grows older, we don't get much about his childhood at all, but when John grows older, we see crowds, multitudes of Israelites turning to the Lord through John's ministry in the desert. And this was like not a really appealing ministry either, right? I mean, this guy's wearing camel's hair and eating locusts with honey, and he's, he's out in the middle of the desert. It's not like you can get there easily. And people are coming in droves. Repenting, turning, having their hearts prepared to receive the one who's coming. Many will turn, says Gabriel, to the Lord because of this man's life and ministry. Last thing. Now, Zechariah's mind, after all this, I'm sure, has already been blown. A baby? That's impossible. 
But then, here in verse 17, what the angel says next about this child that will be, takes Zechariah's astonishment already and elevates it. This is like next level here in verse 17. Read with me, please. And he will go, John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you're taking notes, the, the, the sixth thing simply stated is this. That this baby, this John, will prepare the way for the Lord. That might sound like a simple statement. This is a very big deal, friends. You've got to remember now, there has not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. The last thing, if you check your Old Testament, that God had been communicating to his people centuries ago through the mouth of the prophet Malachi was a prophecy to tell God's people, to encourage God's people to look ahead, to look forward for the coming Messiah. That's how your Old Testament ends. Commence 400 years of silence. But before that Messiah comes, Malachi prophesies. He tells us that God will first send a second Elijah, some sort of a forerunner figure to go before the Christ, before the chosen one, to prepare a way for him. Let me just give you a taste here of Old Testament fulfillment. This is Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. By the way, that's a very easy one to remember. 4, 5, 6. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, Malachi prophesies, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now that sounds familiar. Isn't that what Gabriel's saying here in Luke chapter 1? You bet it is. So let's make sure we're digesting this. We're understanding what's happening here in front of us. Gabriel, quoting from the prophet Malachi, is telling Zechariah in very plain language, which he would have understood, Zechariah, not only are you and Elizabeth going to have a child, but this child is going to be the promised forerunner, the, the, the second Elijah, who for hundreds of years you've been waiting on. This is him. And if the forerunner's coming, what's that mean? That means the Messiah is on his way. So this good news, by the way, this is the first time in Luke's gospel we see that phrase good news that's what gospel is it's good news it's the good news is actually pronounced about john the baptist's birth why well because it's a fulfillment of prophecy that the messiah is on his way it's, he's he's coming this good news that gabriel is sent to bring is more than just a happy ending for zechariah and elizabeth this is good news for everyone this is God sending his messenger to proclaim my salvation is on its way. 
I mean, for crying out loud, guys, think about it. The very temple that Zechariah is standing in and everything that's in it is designed to point to the Messiah. Friends, this is very good news. As a matter of fact, this news is so wildly good that even faithful Zechariah has trouble believing it. Let's check out verse 18. Zechariah's response to this sixfold message about who his child will be. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Translation, it's postmenopause, Gabriel. I'm not sure if you understand how this works. How will this be? Now, I absolutely love what Philip Ryken says, this biblical commentator I've been referring to a couple times, been very helpful through my study of Luke here. Philip Ryken says this about Zechariah's uncertainty. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Zechariah was looking at things from the merely human point of view. I love this. He had his biology right, but not his theology. Isn't that good? Now, remember... Luke has just finished telling us, look back to verse 4, this was last week, he just finished telling us, Dr. Luke, that his purpose for writing the entire gospel account to begin with is certainty. I'm writing this to you, O Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty that you would know that you know that you know that these things about Jesus' life and ministry... And you could take them to the bank. Certainty is Luke's purpose for writing his gospel. And he is the only gospel writer now to give this account about Zechariah and his doubt. Interesting. So, what do we learn from this? How do, how do we connect the dots here from first century priest Zechariah in our lives here today in Washington, Pennsylvania, 2022. Well, here's the biblical principle, friends, we see at work. God's promise outweighs, it prevails over our flimsy faith. Remember now, Zechariah was a righteous man. Verse 6, right? Righteous. Walking blamelessly before the Lord. Translation, he really believed. He was a true follower of God. And yet, despite the fact that Zechariah's faith, faith was genuine, we still see that it was inconsistent. In fact, here as he's receiving the greatest news of his life... His faith is laced with doubt. It's downright flimsy. Yet, consider Christian in Washington, PA in 2022. Consider how this story about a faithful man, yes, who's prone to doubt like you and like me. Consider how this story bolsters the faith of those whose commitment to Christ is also feeble. Consider how this might encourage somebody, oh, like you or like me, 
who can be prone to doubt and despair. God's promise, God's purpose, friends, is bigger than your inconsistency. Listen, please hear this. God is going to do what he has purposed. God will complete the good work he began in his people. And Zechariah's assurance of this beautiful child of promise is not hinging upon his perfect faith. Keep believing. May your perhaps inconsistent, even your feeble faith and mine be strengthened today because God uses doubters just like Zechariah for his glory. And we'll see later in the story how Zechariah's faith grows. The next time we see him, he's been quiet for a long time. He's operating in obedience. He's exercising courageous faith. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. It's beautiful. May the fragile, flimsy faith of Zechariah be a lesson for us all. Our confidence comes from him. It's not our own. Gabriel's response to Zechariah's wavering faith is nothing short of epic, if you remember. Look at verse 19 with me. We're drawing this to a close. The angel answers his question this way. He says, I am Gabriel. The Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent. I'm normally in the presence of Almighty God. And He sent me from His presence to speak to you. And you don't believe? Now, did you catch His credentials? His Gabriel's job description? What's on His resume? Well, He stands in the presence of Of Almighty God. Suffice it to say, Gabriel's kind of a big deal. We see him again come to Joseph and to Mary. We'll we'll get there soon in the coming weeks. But but I want you to see this. Even in the midst of Zechariah's consequence for his unbelief, we still see God's kindness. We see the grace of God reflected through his messenger here. Let's just... Rounded out. And uh, verse 20. And behold, Gabriel responds, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the temple. And, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. Can you imagine? How do you communicate that? You can't talk. He doesn't know, he doesn't know sign language. 
He's making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service has ended, he, he went to his home. Now, the Reformed Expository Commentary, I think, quite winsomely puts it this way. I can't say it better. I just thought I'd share this with you. The, they write this about Zechariah's consequence. Poor Zechariah. He had just heard the greatest news that anyone had heard in four centuries. But he wasn't able to tell anyone about it. All he could do was make hand signals. Just imagine trying to play charades with Gabriel's prophecy. And yet, God's promise prevails. In verse 24, Elizabeth conceives. Miracle. By the way, her response. Whew, isn't that beautiful? Her response is brimming over with faith and, and gratitude. And we're going to save Elizabeth for a message very soon where she's featured quite prominently. We'll see much more from her then and her husband in the weeks to come. So we'll just simply close today with a simple point of application as it relates to this beautiful passage. This, this good news message, this gospel message sent from the very throne room of God. From his presence to his imperfect people. This means quite a bit for us today, I think, in 2022. I mean, consider this. If the purpose of John the Baptist's life and ministry before the first coming of Jesus, before his first advent, is to get God's people ready... You remember what he said in verse 17. Gabriel said the purpose of his coming, verse 17, is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Then, if that's his job, John's job is to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Then, friends, how much more ought we to be a people now filled with the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' first coming, we who know the end, how much more ought we also to be getting our hearts ready for the second advent, for the second coming of this Jesus? I'm just going to leave you with a passage from 1 Thessalonians, we spent a lot of time uh, a year or more ago working through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. They're just riddled with references for us as followers of Jesus to be holy, to be ready, because Christ is coming again. Isn't that the very last thing he says? I mean, just go check the end. The last thing Jesus says to us is, behold, I am coming soon. We ought to be ready. We ought to be a people prepared. Let's read this biblical benediction as a reminder of how we ought to, to be preparing our lives for the second advent of our king. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 9, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need... To have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware. That the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief. In the night. 
while people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come on them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. Children of light, children of the day, we're not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night as others do. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, if you stand in Christ, you are not of the darkness. You are children of the light. So, friends, let's act like it. Let's get ready. Let's live lives of holiness, of of surrender. May we as the people of God today, empowered by the spirit of God, be a people who are growing in readiness. May we be. A people prepared. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. For these reminders from you to your people through your holy scriptures that our confidence doesn't come from our ability to respond well all the time to respond perfectly or or faithfully. God, we thank you that you are God, that you have finished the work in Christ and that you have set a day. That you're coming back and we pray, Lord, that we would be a people prepared. That we here at Friendship Community Church would be a people who care deeply and who live sincerely. Who walk fruitfully, filled with your spirit. Because this good news is our news. The news that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we, like pre-born John... Be doing flips every time we we hear about the name, the, the good news of Jesus. No sweeter name. No higher purpose, Father. Ruin us for the gospel this Christmas season as we prepare next week for the beginning of the Advent season. Preparing our hearts for your first coming. May we also look forward to your coming again. We love you. Christ, and we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.